Hello, and welcome to this episode of Anti-Capitalist Radio, the podcast of anti-capitalist resistance. Today we have a two-parter for you. The first section is a recording of one of the last talks that Neil Faulkner did before he sadly passed away earlier this year. The second is an interview with Julia Camaras, a socialist activist from Brazil, talking about the post-election struggles after Lula has won the presidency. Neil Faulkner was a founder member of anti-capitalist resistance, a socialist who had been active since the 1970s, first in the Anti-Nazi League and then in the Socialist Workers' Party. He was an acclaimed archaeologist and wrote a whole series of books on history, such as The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, followed by Empire of the Eagles, also about Rome, Apocalypse on the Jewish Uprising Against the Roman Empire, Lawrence of Arabia's Wars, and Empire and Jihad, about the Anglo-Arab Wars of the 50 years after 1870. He left the SWP in 2009 with a group that became Counterfire before launching Brick Lane Debates, which was a really exceptional organisation, composed mainly of young people that would meet regularly in East London. Neil's hope in helping to found anti-capitalist resistance was that we could contribute to a wider regroupment on the left, that we could help take the steps towards rebuilding Marxism and revolutionary socialism and fight the twin dangers of creeping fascism, which sometimes seems to be more of a gallop these days, and fossil capitalism-driven global warming. This recording is from the 2022 Anti-Capitalist Resistance Conference and the discussion on international perspectives, which he co-wrote with Phil Hurst. It shows Neil at his best, a broad vision of the class struggles at different levels of society, identifying trends and shifts in economics and politics, and a resounding call for revolutionary action. There is a link to the document in the descriptions for this episode, and of course you can find it on anticapitalistresistance.org. What I'm going to do, comrades, right at the very beginning is say that um, the period that we are living through uh, compares with nothing uh, that we have experienced really since the uh, 1930s. Um, we are living in a, an epoch of um, catastrophe, uh, an age of catastrophe, and uh, an age as well of revolution and uh, counter-revolution. I don't think it's an exaggeration to use uh, uh, those terms, that kind of uh, language, and I'm going to try and explain why. Let me just stress that these are going to be very broad brush generalizations i've got 15 minutes to um introduce and i'm going to leave it to comrades in the discussion uh, to come in with the nuances um some of those nuances are reflected in the amended version of the document which you've got uh, there were amendments from various members of the um sc that all got incorporated uh, and then the the amendments that have been sent in since the SC is in agreement with, as Simon has already um, indicated, and a lot of the nuances are reflected in that. I'm going to deal with some broad brush uh, generalizations. I'm going to start by saying that this is a compound crisis of world capitalism, and in the international document, we identify the different aspects of that compound crisis. Uh, we, we talk, of course, about the ecological um, crisis um, in terms of climate, um, and COP26 has just confirmed for all of us the inability of the international ruling class to take the measures that are necessary in order to address the climate crisis. I mean, I don't need to say anything to anybody on this uh, call about the gravity of that crisis and the way in which it is accelerating and the huge impacts that it's going to have on world um, society and the period immediately ahead. And then there's another aspect of the ecological crisis uh, now, which is, of course, the epidemiological crisis. That too has just ratcheted up with the emergence of Omicron. Omicron won't be the last variant. There will be others uh, because um, the, uh, the situation is that 
COVID is now embedded in world uh, society and there will be other viruses as well. So we're, we're living in um, a world not just of um, climate catastrophe capitalism, but um, virus catastrophe uh, capitalism as well, with huge implications really for the economy and society. These um, ecological, these two types of ecological uh, crisis are then situated within a long-term crisis of overaccumulation in world capitalism, which has given rise to a whole series of what are effectively pathological economic uh, trends in the 40 years or so of the neoliberal um, era, pathological characteristics that the system has that have been ramped up hugely since 2008. And there's no question 2008 is a major turning point. And uh, we talk in the document about some of those economic pathologies, the dominance of finance capital, financialization, the creation of fictitious capital, uh, profiting uh, without producing, the wave of privatization, which is effectively a sell-off of public assets and public services in the interests of uh, private capital, uh, the manic consumerism, uh, at least in the uh, global north, in the more developed uh, parts of the uh, world economy, um, and so on and so forth, a whole series of um, responses to the crisis of overaccumulation, to the fact that the whole, uh, the whole fundamental problem um, is that basic investment um, in uh, production, uh, in raising the productivity um, of labor, in creating useful things has slowed down massively, that we're in a kind of long-term period of stagnation uh, slump, which really underpins the neoliberal era. And then the social crisis, and we, we, we identify that as another component of the compound crisis, and that flows directly out of the way in which um, forms of what I shall call uh, state capitalism have broken down, uh, corporate power has been ramped up, uh, the, the programs of outsourcing and privatization have led to huge increases in corporate power and the accumulation of wealth on a global scale in the hands of private capital and therefore in the hands of the super rich who control private capital so that we have got an unprecedented levels now of social inequality um, across the world system and social inequality which is increasing um, all the time. And then we have a geopolitical crisis which is quite apparent from you know any news bulletin that's looking at international affairs um, is dominated by and images of this unfolding geopolitical crisis, a swathe of mayhem in particular, stretching from uh, Central um, Asia across the Middle East um, into um, Africa. That's really the kind of epicenter really of the breakdown of the geopolitical order. Increases in arms expenditure globally, um, a growing possibility of a major war uh, involving major powers. And, you know, the obvious example of that right now is the way in which tension is ratcheting up um, in the uh, Pacific. And at the back of that, of course, always the possibility that there could be 
a nuclear exchange between the superpowers if uh, there was an, an accidental tipping, and it would probably be an accidental thing. I don't think any of the great powers would actively seek a war, um, but they might be driven into um, a war by the logic of unfolding events, and that could turn into a nuclear um, exchange. And then the final element that we identify in this crisis is the political um, ideological uh, change, uh, which is um, best defined. Uh, as a shift on a global scale on the right to the right. And I want to stress that there is polarization. Um, there is a shift to the left on our side. You only have to look at the way in which the mood music has changed in the climate movement to realize that on our side, people are shifting to the left. People are coming to more radical conclusions, but uh, what is dominant um, across the system is a shift um, to uh, the right, to the authoritarian right, um, which, you know, we understand this in terms of the concept of creeping fascism and uh, the global police state. And that leads me into the second part of the introduction, which is to develop this idea that we are in a, a, an age of revolution and counter-revolution, which initially seems counterintuitive. And yet, in a sense, um, it is true, even though events are playing out um, more slowly than they did in the 1930s and have less definition than they did in the 1930s. And I think that that is bound up with the fact that if we think about the two major social uh, classes, Neither of the two major social classes, the international bourgeoisie, the international capitalist class on the one hand, the international working class on the other. And when I talk about the working class, I'm including all of the oppressed, all of the poor. I'm thinking about 85, 90 percent of the world's population. Neither of the two great classes forming modern global society are at the moment in a position to offer any real solutions to um, the crisis. Um, and that's different from the 1930s, let me say. I mean, there was a shift um, in uh, among the ruling class um, in the 1930s to forms of state uh, capitalism, uh, which is, you know, represented by what's happening in Russia. It's represented by what's happening in Nazi Germany. It's represented by um, Roosevelt's New Deal in the United States. The bourgeoisie was actually putting forward ways of dealing with the depression in the 1930s. We're not really seeing... Um, that kind of bourgeois solution or capitalist solution uh, being put forwards um, at, the, um, um, at the moment. But what's also true, if you look at the 1930s, is that revolution, socialist revolution, was on the agenda. I mean, it's represented in a very obvious way by the struggle in Spain, the Spanish Revolution in, in 36, 37, and then the Spanish uh, Civil War. The working class was mobilized and the working class was putting forward its own solution to the crisis, went down to defeat, of course, but the working class was an active player. Whereas what is happening now is there don't seem to be any uh, solutions and or the forces to deliver on solutions don't seem to um, be there. Now, in terms of the ruling class, I think that means a squeezing of the liberal centre. I don't want to exaggerate it. I've been told by 
comrades, and I agree with the criticisms that comrades on the SC made of this, the initial version of the document. I don't want to exaggerate the squeezing um, of the Liberal Centre, but there is a squeezing um, of the Liberal Centre because of the Liberal Centre's incapacity to offer uh, solutions. And that is producing a shift to the authoritarian um, right. And the authoritarian right represents a form of creeping fascism within the umbrella of the authoritarian right, harder forms of fascism um, are growing. And that is connected with the increasing militarization and repressiveness of the, uh, of the bourgeois state and the degree to which the bourgeois state is becoming an instrument for, uh, uh, for uh, racism, the suppression of dissent, the construction of borders, uh, the militarization of borders um, and so on. Um, you've only got to look at um, Patel's bill uh, for example, which would effectively illegalize any protest that the police didn't like uh, the look of in Britain, or what is happening in the United States at the moment, where uh, Republican-controlled states are organizing for voter suppression, for the gerrymandering of votes, preparing for 2024 and the rising possibility of a more effective coup attempt in the event that the Republican candidate, who will probably be Trump, doesn't actually uh, win the election. And you can also look at what is happening in relation to abortion rights as an example, really, as a very, very clear indication of that shift uh, to the right that is going on on the right um, and in terms of how the bourgeois state is um, operating. But finally, we have uh, this problem um, on uh, our side. Um, there is growing immiseration of the working class, the oppressed and the poor on a global scale. It's not an exaggeration to say that in terms of the absolute numbers, the level of social misery that we are looking at today has never been seen before in human history. I mean, we're talking about billions of people who are living in the slum cities of the global south, for example, in conditions of absolutely appalling and increasing um, poverty and uh, marginalization. That immiseration of the working class and the increasing repressiveness of the uh, state, the suppression of uh, democracy, the suppression of minority groups, the scapegoating of minorities and so on. What that's doing is it's producing a series of explosions and it's impossible to exaggerate the explosiveness from below that we have witnessed in the last uh, 20 years since really the beginning of the, since the, the start of the anti-capitalist uh, movement, a series of enormous uh, popular explosions and um, somewhat suppressed of late by uh, the pandemic. Um, but up until the outbreak of the pandemic, um, it, it was, you know, there was a whole series of them um, across the world. And we, we, we've seen some despite the pandemic uh, since. This is, this is a, a huge eruption from below in response to uh, the growing social distress and the growing uh, political repression and the threat represented by uh, the capitalist class and the right and the bourgeois state and growing fascist forces um, and so on. But what tends to happen with these explosions is they go up like a rocket and then come down like um, a stick. 
And we need to understand why that is. And there's been a real shift in the last, well, in the neoliberal era, really, in the 40 years of the neoliberal era, where working class community um, has uh, degraded, where people have become uh, more atomized, uh, less forming less stable communities, having less um, stable forms of employment, where building trade union organization has become much more difficult because of these shifts. And that, in addition to the way in which the ruling class for the last 40 years has been on the offensive, of course, against trade union um, organization, and that has knocked back um, labor organization. And that means, in a sense, that at the base, um, on our side, um, there is very little in the way of strong foundation, um, very little in the way of ballast, uh, sustaining, supporting um, class-based um, resistance and making it durable, uh, making it possible to sustain struggle um, over a period. I think it's difficult to exaggerate the significance of the global decline of trade union organization, which was basically the foundation for um, the, whole, uh, the whole business of struggle for well over a hundred years from the late 19th to the late 20th century, how fundamental the shift is where we don't really have that strong foundation um, anymore. And we have these unstable, explosive, uh, spontaneous, erratic, episodic uh, struggles, which then go down. And as they go down, as they recede, um, the ruling class is still in place. Uh, capital is still in place. The, uh, the siphoning of wealth to the, uh, to the top is still continuing. The bourgeois state is still there and so on. Now, that's a fundamental problem uh, for our side. And uh, it's connected with this last point, uh, which is the weakness of uh, revolutionary organization, revolutionary leadership, revolutionary forces that we would um, expect uh, to see embedded uh, in those movements and arguing for pushing the movements outwards, making connections with other struggles and building the kind of organization out of those movements that might make the mass struggle more durable, ultimately arguing, of course, as revolutionaries, that we need to think in terms of building organs of mass democracy from below, uh, sections of the working class, sections of the oppressed being organized democratically um, and taking control of parts of the urban space. I mean, that's the level at which we have got to be thinking of it. You just think about what happens in Spain in 1936, in the revolution in Spain in 1936, half the country is taken control of by a workers and peasants movement. The ruling class effectively disintegrates across half of Spain and you then get a mass movement from below of workers and peasants control uh, of the workplaces and the land. Now that's the kind of scale. You wrap up on Yeah, we'll do. That's the kind of scale um, on which uh, things need to be happening. The lack of, the weakness of revolutionary organization embedded in the mass movements, arguing for those things is a fundamental problem. It's very similar, here's my last comment, very similar in a way to 1938 when Trotsky talked 
um, about the crisis of world civilization uh, being essentially the crisis of revolutionary um, organization. There you go. That was Neil Faulkner from the 2022 ACR conference. And we agreed that the crisis facing humanity is also one of revolutionary organization and leadership. So we urge you to get active and get involved in the struggle. You can join ACR at anticapitalistresistance.org. If you want to get in touch with us, it's contact at anticapitalistresistance.org. I'm joined by Julia Kamara, who is a member of the National Coordination of Subiveta, which is an eco-socialist group in PSOL in Brazil, as a Brazilian section of the Fourth International. Thank you for joining us, Julia. Hi, thank you. Thank you so much, Simon. Yeah, thank you. So obviously there's lots of talk about what's happened in Brazil. Uh, certainly the view from Europe, uh, people obviously on the left are very happy about the Lula victory, um, very, very concerned about Bolsonaro and his government and what he's done over the last few years. Um, do you, what's, what's the view from the socialist left about the Lula victory? Well, um, of course we are happy. Uh, that Lula won uh, the, uh, the election. At the moment, we are celebrating. That's that's the truth. <laughs> because we had this terrible government by Bolsonaro, and with lots uh, and lots of recreations and and lots of retrograde government, um, and from a far far right wing. At the moment, uh, we are still celebrating. We are worried with some mobilizations that, that are happening in the country and all over the country, of course. Uh, um, there are a lot of uh, block, blocking roads uh, all over the country. And that's what we're, we are more concerned about. These mobilizations of truckers, there are more than 800 roadblocks in, on a national scale is, of course, clearly an attempt to a coup, uh, like something like the U.S. capital invasion in the U.S. Not the same, but it's an attempt of a coup. And these mobilizations are being carried uh, out centrally and with the expectation of inflating concentrations in the cities in front of the barracks, calling for military intervention. So... Uh, we are in this mix of celebrating uh, Lula's victory and, of course, very worried with these mobilizations. And it's kind of a civil disobedience, uh, as some of us are saying. There was a complicity of the federal police, uh, which is very evident. Uh, and the president of the federal superior court superior court established a penalty if they continue to do this block roads but uh, in announcing the possibility of imprisonment and case of disobedience but they are still going on and that's a that's a very worrying why do you think uh, the far right has grown so much in the last few years i mean it seems to be there is a mass movement of, of people out there um, who are, you know, as you said, similar to the Trump supporters in the US, not exactly the same, but similar, uh, willing to do direct action and civil disobedience protests to undermine the election of a left 
a leftist leader, uh, and they're even agitating among soldiers for them to mutiny against the government. Why is there such a serious intensification of the far right in Brazil? I think we all agree that the global movement of the intensification of the, the far right, uh, we have seen recently in Italy, uh, how were the elections and other countries, of course. Uh, but Brazil, uh, it has been very... The far right has accomplished the space, the, the public space in Brazil since 2018 with Bolsonaro's first election. And, and maybe at the time we didn't uh, have the, this broad view of what was going to happen. Uh, we, know, we knew that it was going to be quite difficult and it, it, it was going to be, uh, we had to be warm uh, about that. We had to, to, to really be preoccupied about it. But um, we had to pass this four years to see how terrible and destroying it was. We had now the elections of 2022 and we had this hope of defeating Bolsonaro in the polls, which was materialized with which Lula's victory. But with Lula's victory, but uh, well, if we are going to see now what made Bolsonaro uh, is you going so strong uh, in, in the pools? We have to analyze some things, I, I believe. I mean, I'm, now I'm going to talk strictly about Brazil and the Brazil elections and what uh, I see that uh, promoted these this huge votes that he had because we had a very narrow victory, right? I mean... Lula had only two, two million votes more than Bolsonaro. And I believe that this second round defined, and last Sunday, materialized a high degree of polarization in the country. Uh, Lula won by 50.9% and Bolsonaro by 49.1%. So it, is, it was a very serious mistake to underestimate Bolsonarism before the elections. And we did this. Because after all, Bolsonaro had 58 million votes, uh, increased the votes by 7 million after the first round. And we, were, we believed that Bolsonaro would only have 30% of the population voting for him. And that was wrong. Everybody was wrong about it. I mean, one of the questions I was going to ask, millions more people voted for Bolsonaro in this election than voted for him first time he was elected. So there's a lot of people who saw the last four years or so and hadn't voted for him before, but were now compelled to vote for him this time, to, I guess, to stop Lula. What is it about Bolsonaro's politics that is so attractive to people? Well, he's a conservative politician and he brings that up uh, in the population and he he claims a part of the working class and, and the middle class uh, that are more conservative, of course, and also fundamentalists. We have this sector in the society and he talks to them. He knows how to talk to them. 
there is this fascism rooted in society that we didn't see before 2018. And with Bolsonaro, he he claims this. He claims that people have to be more have been with arms in the streets and have to be have to impose them themselves. And actually that's what a lot of people was thinking but never expressed. They needed someone like Bolsonaro to say, yeah, you can do this. You can say that you are racist and that you are homophobic and that you won't stand for the the poor's um well so, of course, uh, there is this part of the society that, that they are impelled to, to, to act when someone like Bolsonaro says these things to them. So, you have Bolsonarismo, uh, which is an, uh, this movement that follows Bolsonaro, which is very strong, yet very strong in society. And it will be much more difficult to defeat than Bolsonaro itself. And they are still there. <laughs> they are still well. They are in these mobilizations, and they will be. They will still still be with us for for a long time. Mm-hmm. So uh, I believe that. What is it that Lula needs to do now? So he's got the presidency. What can he do to try and shift the situation? favourably towards a more progressive socialist or at least left-wing uh, agenda? If you uh, were Lula, what would you do? If I was Lula, what would I do? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would go totally left. Uh, but that's not the case. That's not what's going to happen, actually. Because we have a very negative scenario in Brazilian parliament and to maintain his governability, Lula will have to grow uh, his art of uh, alliances. Of um, he will have to do this to to keep governing. Governing. So I mean, of course, uh, we want to see uh, Lula, which is more, uh, which is with us, which is in the left which is trying to, I mean, there are some points uh, in Lula's government that will be more progressive and will be more close to the left, like the environment issues and indigenous people's issues. And he had spoken about this. Uh, He had spoke about about it uh, a few times. But, of course, there is this, agenda that will go much more closer to the right and the center and we we believe that I mean he he's he's been selling in many ways that's the path that the government will have will will follow for this next period. Mm. So because because the view in 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 a lot of the English language socialist and left wing press, you know, Jacobin and and magazines like that, um, as well as a lot of the sort of Labour left uh, socialists in Britain, is you know they they just say Lula's a socialist. This is a victory for socialism because Lula was president before for a long time. And then after a while, you end up with this mass far-right movement. I'm wondering sort of what the relationship is between 
between the PT and government and what they do with capitalism and what they do with the economy and society. We definitely can't say that Lula is a socialist. Well, he's, he's not a like a classical socialist. No, of course not. Lula, uh, we can say that PT is in the left. It's very difficult to work with this concept, right? Left and, and right. Uh, there are a lot of subjectives uh, in this. But uh, PT is a class conciliation party. And it's, it has been for a long time, since the 90s. So uh, we cannot expect Lula to be close to, to, to the left, totally close to the left in this government. Of course, there will be social, uh, political social uh, improvements. We won't have the working class rights being totally destroyed as it was with Bolsonaro, of course. Uh, but we are not sure of how it's going to be Lula's government because Lula will inherit a country that will be one of the least growing in South America and with increase in misery and hunger and food insecurity and obviously the most affected are black women and a high rate of unemployment in addition to job insecurity, the uberization of life and everything else. And we believe that he'll be a better, much better job than Bolsonaro, of course. Uh, there is no question. And he will try to, to fix uh, some of the, those things, like we have this, it's a, a limit. So, of course, he, he will be applicating some measures in favor of social justice, justice and environment preservation and an economic model with more state participation, that's for sure. And he will defend the end of the public spending limit, that's what I was trying to say, which is and try to increase the minimum wage and uh, progressive tax reform and a plan of public works in social and infrastructure areas to generate jobs and economic develop, development, of course. And But, I mean, how much of it he, can he really do uh, with the alliances that he'll have to make with the center and with the right? I'm not talking about the far right, but I'm talking about the classical right in the National Congress. Uh, because we are not a majority in the National Congress, not even in the Chamber of Deputies or in the Senate, because, well, PL, which is Bolsonaro's party, uh, had a huge growth in these elections. And, well, we are still facing Bolsonarism inside the National Congress. Uh, so there'll be there political is. deadlock between the presidency and the and the Congress as well. Yes, I mean, we are yet to see this because uh, Lula is trying to make his alliances and a part of the bourgeoisie is going to follow Lula because, let's face it, uh, everybody legitimates Lula. Uh, the international leaders and the, the market and the institutions in Brazil, they, are, they all recognize 
Lula as a winner. And the bourgeoisie is going to follow where Lula is going whenever it's adequate for them. I mean, the moment that is not this alliance will not be more, it will not be good anymore for this bourgeoisie. So, well, they'll do what they did with Dilma in 2016. That's how we see it. Right now we have this president of the Senate, which is Pacheco, and he's from uh, right party, and he's trying the re-election, and Lula already said that he's with him, uh, that he's going to support Pacheco in this re-election. And also the president of the Chamber of Deputies is trying to get uh, Lula support, so... At this moment, uh, there are a lot of evaluations, uh, some that Lula will be able to have this, uh, have this support of the National Congress, but it will be, uh, it, it won't be a large support, but it will be okay for Hinnitz. But uh, they are still negotiations, so we... We don't know how it's going to be. We know that the the president right now, which, which is trying to be reelected and has uh, a good chance to be reelected, is being supported by Lula. So they already had their, their talks and their well, nice. So, so the class collaborationist politics of the PT will drag the entire presidency to the to the right. We don't know if totally to the right. As I said, we have some some improvements in some social politics, environmental politics, and even in economical politics, uh, prioritizing the state. Uh, but uh, we, we, we can be fools. Uh, of course, there will be a, a dischange. I mean, he won't be able to govern uh, without given place to the right, because the right uh, elected Lula as well, part of the right elected Lula. So, well, he has this debt with them. So the organization, uh, the party that you're a member of, uh, PSOL, what is PSOL's role in Brazilian politics now? Is it able to lead resistance to the the far right and the Bolsonaroists, uh, would it be able to help galvanize opposition to right-wing moves by the PT? The beginning of Lula's government will be constantly under attack and we will need to evaluate the right moment to turn to opposition. Lula, we assume an absolutely divided country with a strong opposition in the National Congress and a lot of governments uh, that were elected in are closer to Bolsonaro in many states of Brazil, such as São Paulo, Rio de Janeiro, Minas Gerais. So it's a very difficult situation. And But we from PSOL, from the Red Collapse, we must not lose sight of the fact that we need to restrain social movements, and we have to give real protagonists to the black and the indigenous movements in Brazil as well as 
boost the women's movement and make real gains in policies on reproductive and sexual rights, of course. And that's definitely not on the Lula's agenda, at least not immediately. So we believe that with this new political environment open up, uh, first of all, uh, it's up to us to be part of this group which is preventing a coup from prevailing in the National Congress and outside it. And But we are also responsible, I believe, to mobilize the streets to defeat fascism and that is still very latent in the country. And to keep in mind that we can no longer make the same mistakes as we did before. We cannot give up the direct work with the working class or building connections in territories if our main goal is the consolidation of a new social majority which is closer to us, these are essential elements for our victory. So there's going to be lots of campaigning in the months and years ahead. Yeah, we are already talking about maintaining the committees, uh, the, the electoral, which we were using the elections, so we can still mobilize people. And as I said, first of all, we have to guarantee that Lula is going to govern, govern. And we know that will be uh, under attack, a government, govern, which is, is going to be under attack, of course. And we know our responsibility in maintaining this government for the last four years. Uh, PSOL is growing. We have this place in society, which is not that big, but it's important for the left. So people like... Uh, uh, like I mean, Talira Petroni in Rio de Janeiro, or Bolos in São Paulo, our major representatives of PSOL, uh, they have this. They are very. They know that they 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 have this task, and all the whole party have this task, and uh, to to try to maintain this government for the last for the the next for the next period, the next four four years. But we need to go um, uh, a little bit further than this. We need to get a new social majority. And we need, we need that this new social majority is closer to us. So we have a lot of work to do as a party. Okay, Julia Kamara, thank you very much for joining us today. And obviously, huge international solidarity from across the left and social movements and working class. Brazil is such an important country where all these battles are being played out. And we know that obviously Lula winning the election is just the beginning of a whole new round of struggle. So solidarity with you, your comrades, and also all the campaigns that you're involved in. Thanks for listening to that podcast from Anti-Capitalist Radio. You can subscribe on Spotify or Amazon Music or a plethora of other platforms from which uh, Radical Socialist podcasts can be found. You can also listen to the episodes on the Anti-Capitalist Resistance website at anticapitalistresistance.org. And if you feel like contacting us, if you have any uh, suggestions for topics you'd like us to cover or you uh, have something you'd like to discuss with us or even debate, you can email us on acradio at anticapitalistresistance.org. We look forward to hearing from you.